Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Barb McQuaid. This week, Kim is taking a well-deserved break. In the meantime, Joyce Vance, Jill Wine-Banks, and I will be breaking down Andrew Cuomo's defense to allegations of sexual harassment. We'll be looking at why the Department of Justice hasn't taken more aggressive action on the events of January 6th. And we'll also discuss what airlines can do about unruly passengers. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. Uh, but, you know, what, one thing that I've been enjoying in the past couple of weeks is watching the Olympics. Uh, in fact, today, uh, once again, I'm wearing my uh, U.S. Women's National Team soccer jersey in honor of the bronze medal won by uh, USA. I know we have listeners from all over the world outside of the United States. So to all of the rest of the country, countries, good try. But, uh, you know, USA. Um I actually really enjoy watching the Olympics, and I'm just curious, Jill and Joyce, whether uh, you guys enjoy watching them, too. We do. Um, My husband was a swimmer in college, and so we follow the swimming religiously and the diving because it's just beautiful, and, of course, gymnastics. I'm wearing a sparkly top tonight because it seems appropriate because gymnastics, I think, is probably my favorite thing to watch next to diving, where they do acrobatics in the air before they land really hard in water. Um, it, it's been an amazing thing to watch the talent and the drive of these athletes, uh, male and female, uh, and I look forward to the Paralympics to follow. And Joyce, you're watching too, I know. I know. Love the Olympics, and I'm such a junkie. I just literally will watch anything that's on at any given moment. But we love the women's soccer team. We got to see them play in Birmingham. It's probably been five or six years since they were here. It was the highlight of my youngest kid's life at that point in time. He told me that they were like dangerous, angry ballerinas. Um, <laughs> and they, they really are. They're, they're wonderful. But, but y'all, and no surprise here, for me, my favorite part of the Olympics has been Tom Daly, the British diver, who's knitting in the stands, you know, while he's watching the event and and getting his mojo together. (laughs) And it's not just any knitting. He's doing this really beautiful, intricate knitting, and he apparently um, uses a lot of it to raise money for charity. So, Barb, with all due deference and, and despite my usual ability to only root for the home team, I'm rooting for Daly, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's he's a great story. He's been fun. And, you know, I like watching some of the more obscure sports, too. Like, have you seen trampoline? That's crazy. They jump I, I, When so did that high. become an Olympic sport? Did I, I think miss the that? last time around. Okay. But it's really fun to watch. Sport climbing, where they do this, you know, rock climbing for speed as fast as they can. Kayak racing through the rapids is amazing. And have you seen the one, um, Rhythmic Gymnastics, where they use the ball? Yes. Uh, it's yes. really wonderful. It's amazing. Yes. They they throw it in the air and like catch it behind their knee, and it's it's really it's really something. I was talking to a friend today whose daughter um, works in production for NBC, doing some of the video. And you know, the reason we're able to see all that great stuff is they work all night long uh, because of the time difference in Japan. They are collecting that video and editing it so it all looks you know nice and tidy from uh, eight to eleven on your television during prime time. Maybe not for those of you in the Central Time Zone. Um, but it's only because they've got these people working all night uh, recording and, and editing all that video. So we are grateful to them for making it uh, so enjoyable for us. Well, um, let's, uh, let's get into our, our topics. I think that um, one of the most interesting stories of the week had to be the report that was issued about New York 
Governor Andrew Cuomo relating to sexual harassment. And Joyce, um, I, I know you've been paying close attention to that in his defense. Um, you want to lead us through that discussion? I know, Barb, that you're using the word interesting to describe the report <laughs> the same way I often use that word, which is to say horrific, insulting, horrible. And we have lots, lots here, I think, to talk about. New York's attorney general announced that a report that was conducted at the request of Governor Cuomo by two outside independent lawyers had been completed. The allegations were that Cuomo had engaged in sexual harassment of multiple people on his staff and who he came into contact with as a result of his public function. So the result of the report was very unequivocal. The, the report in its very first sentence comes right to the point. And the investigators say, we, the investigators, appointed to conduct an investigation into allegations of sexual harassment by Governor Andrew M. Como, conclude that the governor engaged in conduct constituting sexual harassment under federal and New York state law. No equivocating. The report then lays out allegations from 11 women with a startling amount of detail to support that conclusion. And among them, there's, there's one woman who indicates that the governor touched her. She was an armed member of his security detail. She found it to be humiliating. It was across her body um, while she was on duty. And that was apparently witnessed by other members of the governor's security detail. Interesting to note that he only had her in the position where he could treat her that way because he had actually changed the rules about who qualified to serve on his detail, how many years of service you had to have so that he could bring her on board. His conduct, as indicated in the report, is very blatant. It appears to have been pretty open. Other people observed his conduct on some occasions, according to the report. Looks like he really thought that he could get away with it, that he was untouchable. What we want to take up today, I'm sure many of you have seen the basics of these allegations against the governor, but now we're starting to hear what his defense is. So we'll take that up a little bit today. The governor's first response came in a report that was a document from his lawyer, Rita Glavin. It was titled, position statement. They must have really put a lot of thought into not calling it a defense. I don't think that they, you know, wanted to have that sort of a public image that they were criminal defendants. But we'll start with that document and an assessment of whether or not it, it offers the governor any sort of hope. Barb's, Barb, what's your top line on whether this amounts to a good defense, this document? I think this document was necessary for someone who is in public life as a, as a politician, uh, but I see it as more political gimmick than legal defense. Uh, you know, he he likely will face some legal challenges in courts. These women could file civil lawsuits against him. He may face impeachment, um, and he could face criminal charges. And at that point, I think we'll see what amounts to uh, more effective legal defenses. But I think this is about trying to protect his reputation in the court of public opinion and trying to give supporters some things to hang their hat on. But um, I don't think it's going to cut it legally. And frankly, I, I thought it sounded really tone deaf. Um, and they used what I consider a defense lawyer's trick of deflection. I'm sure you've all seen this before. And it's basically, let's cherry pick the least egregious thing that your client is accused of, and then talk about that as if that's what all the fuss is about. And so in this case, what they talk about is hugging and kissing. 
Um, and he focused his remarks on the hugging and the kissing and showed photos of hugging and kissing people. I do this all the time. I'm affectionate. It's just a misunderstanding. It's generational. Um, you know, my, I learned from my mother and my father that hugs and kisses put people at ease. Uh, and, and, and so that's what this is all about. Well, if you read the report, you see that these 11 women are not complaining about hugs and kisses. They are complaining about the touching of their breasts, buttocks, chest, lower backs, running his fingers down their spine, looking down their shirts, asking them about their sex lives, offering to play strip poker. Um, and these gestures and touchings did not put these women at ease. They reported feeling humiliated and shocked and deflated. And one even said, I felt like I was some little doll for the governor of New York. Um, they also posed, uh, showed photos of other public officials embracing people. See, everybody does it. Um, but none of those photos showed anyone uh, touching someone's breasts or buttocks or other private areas. So I think that um, it is an effort to... Uh, salvage his political reputation and try to cre create the impression that there's another side to this story. Uh, but I was not persuaded by it. Jill, do you agree with Barb's assessment? I do agree with Barb. Um, I, I always agree with Barb almost 100% of the time. And with you too, Joyce. Um, I think... Not always, Jill. Remember, there's that Snapchat chat. Yeah, there are. So, okay, occasionally. <laughs> but, man, Barb is holding a grudge. <laughs> I had, was willing to put it aside. Um, no, I think that there was a political need to do this, but that it was ineffective legally. I think what's most important, and, Barb, you sort of touched on this, is that, and I, the word touch is important, I guess, in terms of what the accusations are, but... It's what's not included in this. There's nothing about the security official the, uh, uh, who was assigned to protect the governor, who he touched and ran his fingers toward her gun below her waist, clearly an invasion of any woman's privacy and space. Um, that's not even mentioned in what we saw in that report. And in his oral remarks that same day as the report was announced, or in the defense that we heard from his lawyers today, uh, or his own personal lawyer, as well as the uh, governor's chamber's lawyers, um, some of it is based on some of the defenses, well, people are just misinterpreting my words. I didn't mean that. He may not have meant it, but any reasonable person hearing those words would have interpreted them the same way. And he is responsible for any reasonable interpretation of his words. So when you combine that with what's not included there and the fact that a criminal complaint has now been filed in Albany, um, I think he is in serious legal jeopardy, both politically and legally, both civilly and criminally. And I think we'll have lots more to be talking about in weeks to come about the civil and criminal uh, liabilities that he's facing, as well as the lack of friends that he seems to have with everybody calling for his uh, resignation. So, Barb, I might be nitpicking here, but I find the tone of this response by the governor's lawyers to be really offensive. I mean, from the table of contents on, right? I don't think I've ever been offended by a table of contents before. <laughs> but it starts out, and they say, and this is a quote, the governor's interactions with Alyssa McGrath, Anna Liss, and Caitlin were unremarkable. 
this is the heading of, of one of the sections. You know, as he goes through and dismisses each of these 11 women in turn, they were, they were lying. He remembered it differently. He had no recollection of it. Unremarkable. These women have come forward so bravely as women in this situation do, but even more so with the most powerful man in, in New York government. I don't understand the strategy here, quite frankly, of being so dismissive of these women's allegations. Do you think it works? No, it doesn't work for me. And, and again, I think sometimes you see this. It's certainly like kind of the Donald Trump playbook of the best defense is a good offense. It doesn't work for me. And in fact, like you, I, I find it offensive and tone deaf. Um, I actually want, you know, when I read this section, I went back and looked at the report and what it said about these particular three women, um, you know, thinking, well, maybe maybe these were pretty minimal. Maybe there's nothing going on here. But they allege things like, uh, you know, he would look down their shirts, he would hold their hands and gaze into their eyes and say, you're a beautiful woman in Italian, uh, kiss them, f- flirt with them, ask if they have a boyfriend, call them sweetheart and darling. One of them he asked to come into his office to research something on his computer where she had to bend over and he positioned himself so that he was staring at her rear end and she felt very self-conscious while she did it. He commented on their makeup, their clothing, their hair, would grab them in, in what they call a dance pose. <laughs> My gosh. And I think one thing that's really important about these allegations that anybody who might feel that they are being uh, the subject of sexual harassment is the law looks at the totality of the circumstances. So if there is some sexual harassment going on that is physical touching or this hostile workplace environment based on gender, you can also include other things that add to the hostility as part of that totality of circumstances, even if the other things don't relate to gender. So for example, one of the women said that in addition to all of these you know, suge- sexually suggestive things that he would say and do, he hazed her by repeatedly asking her to sing Danny Boy for him. Now, there's nothing particularly gender-based about singing Danny Boy, but it is all part of that totality of the circumstances of humiliation. I mean, don't forget, sexual harassment in hostile environment, it isn't about the sex, it's about the power, and it's about being a bully and humiliating other people. And so um, all of the things that are described in this section that they say was unremarkable to me is all part of the totality of the circumstances and just feeds right into that narrative that this is just a big bully who thinks he's better than other people. You know, Barb, I I was just going to say, I interpreted unremarkable in a slightly different way as really being a stupid thing to say because, in effect, what he's saying is it's unremarkable because I did it all the time. And doing it all the time doesn't make it any more legal when you do do it. Um, I I think, Barb, you and Joyce wrote a a terrific thing and talked about, well, if you say to a police officer who stops you for speeding saying, well, everyone else is doing it, that's not going to get you very far. You're still going to get a ticket for speeding. And just the fact that he says it's unremarkable because he did it all the time and other people <laughs> did it all the time doesn't make it any less horrible. And when we talk about horrible, I think we have to really focus in on two other things, which is the toxic work environment and the retaliation. Um, and although they did come up with a sort of defense that it wasn't really retaliation, it was just to put in perspective that um, Lindsay Boylan didn't leave because of a toxic work environment. She left because there were complaints about her performance. Um, That's still retaliation. They went out after her, and it did, in fact, discourage other complainants from coming forward, and that's why 
retaliation is so terrible. It stops the truth from coming out. So all in all, I would say he's in worse shape now than he was before. You know, those are all really good points because I think something that we should clarify is that when we're talking, and I think primarily when the investigators were talking about the governor committing harassment, we're actually talking about civil wrongs and the victims can file their own personal lawsuits in civil court for damages. There are, as Jill mentioned, um, there's at least one sort of criminal a complaint in action in Albany, uh, including uh, or, or rather involving a, a victim who has not yet been publicly identified. It's possible that there could be others. They could be misdemeanors or felonies. That's not yet clear. But these civil claims are, are very, very significant. And women who experience this sort of workplace harassment and, and toxic environment should come forward. They can use lawyers. They can go to the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And there are, there are a lot of venues for um, obtaining relief. But Jill, I want to ask you about one last aspect of the governor's written response, because there's this really weird collection <laughs> of photos that's appended to his position statement. Anybody who watched the governor make his statement on national television earlier this week saw some of these photos, which he had playing behind him. Um, you know, it was uh, uh, Cuomo with Joe Biden's hands on, on either one of his shoulders, Cuomo kissing Hillary Clinton, Cuomo hugging and embracing everybody from Al Gore to Barack Obama to Nancy Pelosi to random people that he apparently just bumped into on the, the, on the street during his average day. Be so careful in all, the streets of Albany. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, it's, it is bizarre. Are these photos, is there a reason to append them to this defense document, it, it makes it to me feel like he's not really taking it seriously, like he almost expects people to laugh it off. I, I don't really understand this, and I don't view it as much of a defense. Curious about your take well, on it. Well, if I were his defense lawyer, I would not have done it. But I think it is more part of this um, theme of it's unremarkable. I do it all the time. And that may be why I interpreted his statement everybody unremarkable as being it's done by everybody and by me all the time. So I don't think it's an effective defense at all. I don't know that it means he's not taking it seriously. I think he's misinterpreting how people will respond to it. I don't think it will do him any good as a, a defense to show these photographs that only confirm that he does it. And besides, as Barbara said earlier on in this show, None of those photographs are of him reaching under someone's blouse and grabbing her breast. None of them are grabbing someone's buttocks. None of them show the sexual assault of the state trooper who was protecting him. And I consider that a sexual assault within the criminal laws of New York uh, for him to run his hands toward her private parts. So I, I don't see the point of this. And when they say they had an 85-page defense in that document... It's really only 26 or 28 text pages, including the table of contents and the you know, cover page. The rest of it is all these silly pictures. So I don't think it was a good attempt uh, at all. You know, this afternoon, just before we started taping, we had the opportunity to see a defense 
presented for the governor that was a little bit more detailed. And it was interesting. It involved both his personal lawyer and also a a lawyer for the governor's office, which they call the executive chamber in New York. You know, a, a judge's office is called chambers. The governor is the chief executive officer of the state of New York, so they call his office executive chambers. That's a little confusing if you haven't bumped into it before. Both of those lawyers held a press conference. They laid out some complaints that they had with the investigation. And I'll just close here for now because I'm sure we'll be discussing this more. Did anything that you heard today in this press conference give you a feeling that Cuomo maybe had a better defense than the one that we have just thoroughly taken apart, either no. of y'all? <laughs> I mean, in one word, no, it didn't. Um, I don't think they accomplished much. And again, they ignored the same things that they ignored in their um, their one page, their, their earlier written report. And they really made no new points other than to continue to attack the investigators and claim that there was bias, um, that they hadn't asked all the right questions. All of the things they wanted to have included were included in their written report. So it's already before the public. I don't see anything that they landed any blows against the investigators or against the victims. I just heard a lot of nitpicking in, you know, the minutia. Um, and, it, you know, to me, I found that unpersuasive. If you, big picture here, there's a real problem with 11 women uh, alleging, credibly by these investigators' account, uh, sexual harassment. Uh, and to focus on, well, this person said that, you know, this happened and it was actually with their left hand and it was uh, inside the plane and it was actually on a Friday and not a Thursday. I, I found that kind of minutia to be unpersuasive. What about you, Joyce? You know, I was surprised that they led with process kinds of complaints. We didn't get transcripts. We didn't have an opportunity to review the report. They complained that the investigators weren't independent because one of them, June Kim, the former acting uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, had had some involvement in prior investigations into Cuomo that didn't develop into prosecutions. None of that really said, and our client isn't guilty of anything that he's charged with. So I thought it was a, a questionable place to start. They did go into some details after that, and they tried to argue, for instance, that on November 16th, one of the key dates, that some of the women who had come forward weren't where they, weren't where they said they were on that day or that they didn't seem particularly distressed. I think that this is going to bear close watching to see if this sort of, barb I think you, you got it accurately, you called it sort of nitpicking at details whether it holds up at all, whether it does anything to, to push back on any of these complaints. But the reality is 11 women, 11 different complaints. They are not all going away. I think Governor Cuomo's in a lot of trouble here. Hey, Joyce, have you heard about this wedding planning organization called Zola? I have. One of our friend's daughters, who's actually a friend of ours, just got married. It was a marriage that was delayed by COVID, so the wedding was especially meaningful. And they used Zola for their save the date and for their invitations. Jill, have you had any experience with I this? haven't had any experience with it, but I was a bridesmaid. In fact, my trip to Memphis was with the bride and the other bridesmaids. And 
I know how much easier it would have been if we had had a, a tool like Zola. So I'm all for it. And Barb, what about you? You know, I haven't, but like you, um, Jill, I, I had a wedding and the logistics can be very challenging. Uh, I know some brides take it like, you know, they're planning the invasion of Normandy. So I think for many people, having uh, someone to take all of that stress off of your plate is probably very welcome. Okay, come on. Invasion of Normandy doesn't even begin to capture it. I mean, my mother-in-law and my mom, they took over Europe. <laughs> I have a friend whose daughter has become Bridezilla, and I know she would have been much more happy if she had had Zola, because it makes wedding planning easier and less stressful by creating everything couples need, all in one place. Whether it's wedding vendors, save the dates, invitations, free websites, registry, and more. You can do it all at a one-stop shop so you save a ton of time. With Zola, you can plan your whole wedding right from your couch online or with Zola's five-star app. That sounds really great to me. Like Barb, I've got four kids, so four weddings to look forward to at some point. And from the couch sounds really good. We also know that weddings are plenty expensive. With Zola, planning doesn't have to be. All of Zola's tools are completely free to use, plus with free guest addressing and free shipping and returns every day, Zola truly has your back including for virtual events. You can get free personalized paper samples from Zola to try out before you buy. Over 1 million couples have fallen in love with Zola. See what all those five-star reviews are all about. Go to Zola.com S-I-L today and use promo code SAVE50. That's SAVE50 to get 50% off your Save the Dates. For peace of mind, you'll also get during COVID, this can be very valuable, free change the dates with your purchase. That's Zola.com slash S-I-L promo code SAVE50. You can find the link in our show notes. We may have enjoyed that one a little bit. Yes. I have to tell you, I went onto their website just to test it out and looked at Chicago venues, and they had some really cool venues listed. Um, maybe for my 45th wedding anniversary, I'll do it. <laughs> there you go. Well, the next thing we wanted to talk about is the Department of Justice's uh, role, or perhaps silence is the better term, on uh, its investigation as it relates to Donald Trump and his inner circle relating to the events of January 6th. Jill, you want to talk with us about that? I do, and it sort of is a natural segue from our last discussion because we were talking about the mounting evidence against Governor Cuomo And now we are faced with mounting evidence against Donald Trump and his inner circle, not just him, but his closest allies. Um, We've had recent revelations that I just want to remind our audience of. I'm sure they are all familiar with um, Donahue's notes from the Department of Justice where uh, Donald Trump said to Donahue and Rosen, who was the acting attorney general, just say that this is a corrupt election and leave the rest to me. And we've talked about this in the past, and thank heavens we got that notes because of Merrick Garland waiving executive privilege for testimony by these Department of Justice officials. We've also had a just security uh, timeline on Mark Meadows' role in this, which is very devastating, and we'll include that link in our show notes. Uh, We've also had a recent revelation 
that uh, Clark, who was the acting head of the Civil Division of the Department of Justice, drafted about the Georgia election, and we'll include that letter as well in our show notes. And he used it to not only uh, try to get the Department of Justice to abuse its power to investigate something that didn't exist, which was fraud in the Georgia election, but he used it to try to oust Rosen as the acting attorney general and to get himself appointed. And then we have a resignation, and I'm sorry, I don't know how to properly pronounce his name, but Patrick Hovakiminian, um, H-O-V-A-K-I-M-I-A-N. And Patrick, if you're listening, please call me and tell me how to say your name properly. <laughs> but you wrote a very, very impressive resignation letter in the expectation that Rosen was going to be fired and that you and um, Donahue would resign because of that. And it's really a direct attack on the president for basically interfering in an election, which is a crime. Um, So Barb and Joyce, I'm so glad that you are my sisters-in-law. You wrote a terrific analysis, which is in our show notes, of why the Department of Justice must be aggressive in investigating the conduct of former President Trump and why doing so is not partisan and why not doing so is a really bad idea. So, Barb, let's start with what, if anything, we know that the Department of Justice is doing, because I'm sure you've had Twitter followers like I have saying, why aren't they indicting? What is going on here? So what do we know? Yeah, so I think one thing is that um, investigations and charges always take far longer than people expect them to. Um, And that means it's because you have to put a lot of people in the grand jury and gather a lot of notes and records and documents. And sometimes you have to do one step after another. So we don't really know what DOJ is doing behind the scenes. It may very well be that they're doing a lot of investigating. We do know that they have charged more than 500 people with the activities of January 6th. You know, some of it is low-hanging fruit, you know, people who were trespassing in a restricted area, um, some more serious with assaults and property damage, and they've even charged some people with conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. What we haven't seen is any charges against people who are trying to overturn the election uh, or planners and organizers of that day. And, you know, the, the, the piece we wrote kind of made the case for why we think that should happen. Um, and, you know, when, when prosecutors charge a case, Jill and Joyce, as you both certainly know, just because you have the evidence to do so does not mean that you should charge the case. You also have to look at whether there's a substantial federal interest at stake that makes those charges worthwhile. And so in some instances, you say it's just not worth the resources because the resources are scarce and they're better used for something else. Or, um, you know, the person doesn't need to be deterred or uh, there's not a public safety risk here. But in this case, um, where there may be some blowback and some allegation that charging President Trump or his associates is politically motivated, I think they can withstand that because the downside of declining to charge when someone is trying to overturn a a free and fair election um, is such a grave consequence. And the need for deterrence here is so great that I think not charging would be far worse than any political blowback you might get from charges. And Joyce, I'd love for you to add anything you want about that, but also focus on what the Department of Justice could be investigating. What are the potential crimes and you know, why should they be doing this? What can they do? 
Well, I think the key point here, and, and something that Barb and I said in the piece that we wrote with um, Harvard Professor of Constitutional Law Emeritus Larry Tribe, we made the argument that there was sufficient predication, sufficient evidence in the public domain for DOJ to open an investigation, right? If, if they have this kind of evidence available about a senator or a governor trying to interfere with his own reelection, DOJ would be investigating that elected official, a mayor. There's no reason that they shouldn't be doing that with Trump. We're not prejudging what they should charge, but we are very clear that it's time for DOJ to begin if it has not already an investigation. And to your point, Jill, there are a lot of potential charges here, and this is the whole point of having an investigation. DOJ can, for instance, subpoena witnesses to the grand jury, and this isn't like this abusive process we see in Congress where witnesses sometimes just decide they won't show up. When you get a grand jury subpoena in a criminal matter, unless a judge quashes that subpoena for you, which doesn't happen very often, you must show up in that grand jury. You must testify under oath unless you can assert a Fifth Amendment right um, and say that, that you don't want to, you know, um, incriminate yourself by testifying. So DOJ has a huge ability here to gather information. They can get documents. They can get emails. They can get text messages among the principals and try to sort out which of the potential charges might be a good fit. Some of the ones that we identify, for instance, are conspiracy to defraud the United States. That was the charge that Bob Mueller used in, in the um, investigation into hacking and disinformation conducted by Russian-operated entities. Uh, one of the big cases that he indicted involving the Internet Research Agency, and here we would have that same sort of a potential charge there's an obstruction of government proceedings charge that's being used against some of the January 6th uh, insurrectionists that could be a good fit here for Trump and some of the other upper leader level, uh, some of the upper level leaders that you mentioned, Jill. There's a possible RICO charge. That's a charge that we usually associate with mobster activity. But it could be a possible fit here because there's attempted extortion going on, calling the Georgia Secretary of State asking him to find new votes, putting pressure on the attorney general. The RICO charges need to be investigated. And there are also other charges that folks might be less familiar with. There is, of course, the possibility of seditious conspiracy and incitement of insurrection. DOJ would have to evaluate a lot of possible defenses involving the First Amendment, but no reason not to investigate. And then items like voter fraud and the criminal version of, of the Hatch Act, which is compelling political activity. The point that I'm making here is not that each and every one of these should be indicted. It's that it's a big, broad universe. DOJ must investigate and, and determine whether or not any charges are merited. I think that's the important point is that we're saying investigate and then you will determine whether to indict. We're not saying that there is guilt, we're saying that there is a sufficient evidence to do the investigation. And I personally think that this is a very different situation that does call for action by the Department of Justice than other times when you might look at one new administration looking back, investigating, and trying to indict another. Uh, do you agree with me that this is one of those that is in that category of, yes, it's the right thing to do, and it's not the same as 
for example, lock her up calls uh, or any of the other past times when maybe there's been a threat of a new administration investigating an old one? Yeah, I mean, there will be allegations of that. And I think that the Justice Department would have to steal itself for that sort of uh, argument. But this is based on conduct. I mean, that's the difference. It is not based on uh, politics. It's not based on uh, who the person is. It's based on the facts. And to me, the real smoking gun was one of the documents you referenced, Jill. And there have been several things that came out this week that are kind of smoking guns. The resignation letter and the notes about just say that the election was corrupt and I'll do the rest. But I think the one that really got me was the letter from Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to be the acting attorney general, was the um, assistant attorney general for the civil division. But uh, he really lays out in this letter that he wanted acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen to sign. He lays out what, what is clearly the roadmap here of what they wanted to achieve. They advised the state of Georgia about how they might throw out the results of their election and substitute it with a decision by their legislature, Republican-controlled. Um, I mean, it is so far outside the lane of the Justice Department to tell a state how to conduct its own election. Um, and so it it, it it talks about we have become aware of corruption in your state and others. And, and you know, the, the other states we know where they were focusing, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all the states that were swing states, if they can throw just a couple of those, it can do, you know, do doing the math uh, you could get the election turned over to Donald Trump. Or if you just create enough havoc and you can convince members of Congress, as he said in that uh, the, the, those notes, leave it to me and the Republican members of Congress, if you vote against certification, then that throws the election to the House of Representatives. And in the House, the way that works is the uh, they vote one one vote per state. And so Republicans have 26 delegations. And so Republicans could control the outcome of that. So that letter, to me, really outlines what the game plan was here. And so I, I think that regardless of political blowback, and there will be some, and I, I think I got a note from a, a listener who was concerned about, you know, if you think January 6th was bad with the violence, imagine what would happen if Donald Trump gets indicted, uh, what the violence would be. I, I think, you know, you prepare, um, you do more than you did on January 6th to be ready if there's something like that. But I don't think you you know, you get to decline charges because you're afraid that the defendant will get so mad at you that he might become violent. I think that uh, that's all the more reason that we need to hold hold him accountable if that's what the evidence shows. I agree shows. with you and want to also point out that this conversation happened after Rosen and before him, Barr, had said, the department has investigated there is no evidence of fraud that would have changed the outcome of this election. So they were going ahead and saying, it was corrupt. It was fraud, even though they knew that there was no such evidence. And that's what makes it so really devastating, as does saying, and if your governor won't do this, you in the legislature can do it on your own. You have this power. And they don't. We have to keep remembering that it's one person, one vote, and it's we the people who elect the president. And Joyce, do you uh, have anything you want to add on, on this issue? Well, I agree with y'all, and I, I would reference um, a, a decision about prosecution that happened when Barb and I were U.S. attorneys that points out that it's good to have restraint and not going after quasi-political decisions that were made in the administration that preceded you. You know, our boss, 
Eric Holder had to make a decision about whether he was going to indict and prosecute former Bush officials who had sanctioned the use of torture against terrorism suspects. He decided not to prosecute. It was extremely unpopular. He took a lot of flack at the time for that decision, but he made it out of this belief that it was important to give that prior administration space and to not be too quick to be the ones calling to lock him up, right? Um, not popular, but the right thing to do. Barb is absolutely correct when she says the difference here is the nature of the conduct, because on January 6th, there was an effort to overthrow the legitimate government of the United States, an effort to prevent from seating a president who had won the election. And that really transcends any other sort of political conduct. This isn't political. It's so foundational to our continued existence. I view it as being, you know, at least as dangerous as anything that has happened since the Civil War. And at least at the end of the Civil War, there was a surrender. Donald Trump has never surrendered. In fact, he continues on with this course of conduct. He has made it clear that he will continue to engage in this sort of behavior that's antithetical to democracy. And even something so dangerous as you all discuss Georgia and the roadmap that uh, at least some of the folks, fortunately and successfully at DOJ, wanted to lay out that would let Trump steal the victory from Biden, Georgia and other states now have laws that would permit their legislatures to overturn these elections. It'll be a 2.0 version of what happened in 2020 because Trump presents such an enormous danger to the country. It's critical that DOJ take this seriously, investigate fully, and prosecute if the evidence is there. Last night for dinner, my husband made Mediterranean chickpea bowls from HelloFresh. They were fantastic. Our kids even ate them. Are you still using HelloFresh, I am, and I love the different choices of recipes and learning different techniques of cooking that you can use on days when you aren't using a kit from HelloFresh. I have learned so many things about how to make a sauce or even how to cook fish, which I previously was afraid to try. So I love it. And I think, Barb, you're still using it too, right? Oh, I am. I, I love it. We, we eat it two or three nights a week. And Joyce, we, I just got the chickpea meal. I haven't made it yet, but it, uh, it came. And it's fun to experiment, as you said, with uh, you know, things maybe that you wouldn't otherwise try to cook. It's, um, you know, it's sort of like paint by numbers. That you, it's hard to screw it up because they give you all the ingredients and they measure it out for you in advance. So that's one of the things I like about it. Uh, with HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip the grocery store and sign up with HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. HelloFresh's calorie-smart options make it easier to enjoy tasty, lower-calorie meals this summer without scouring the grocery store for ingredients. And with HelloFresh, you have the flexibility you need to easily customize your order on the app within minutes. That means you can easily change your delivery day, food preferences, plan size, or skip a week whenever you need. And I've done that. You know, when I've been out of town or busy, I've switched days and even skipped weeks. So it's uh, it's very convenient. I had to switch this week because it's my husband's birthday and I'm taking him away to a vacation. So I had to skip this week. And I know we're going to miss their food and look forward to coming back to it. 
And it's a really good thing because HelloFresh offers so many menu items, 50 menu items and market items each week, from vegetarian meals to craft burgers and extra special gourmet options. So don't wait to get started. It's too good. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Sisters14 and use code SISTERS14 to get up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Sisters14. That's Sisters14 and use code SISTERS14 to get up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit and number one with the sisters-in-law. Look for the link in our show notes. Well, we wanted to talk about an incident in the news. Uh, Last Saturday, a man became intoxicated on a Frontier Airlines flight from Philadelphia to Miami and assaulted three flight attendants. He was a 22-year-old Ohio man named Maxwell Berry, and he allegedly groped the breasts of two of the flight attendants. He removed his shirt, uh, and then he punched a third flight attendant. Um, A member of the flight crew ultimately subdued him and duct taped him to his seat. Upon landing, the man was charged with three counts of battery. Um, It's it's an interesting case, and I wondered, have, have any of you ever been on a flight with an unruly passenger? I have not. I have not. I have not been on. And I checked with um, a cousin who's a pilot and a cousin who happens to be the pilot's father, who was the Chicago Tribune's transportation reporter. And neither of them has been, even though the reports of the numbers are quite amazing. We're talking about thousands of unruly passengers a year. Um, But luckily, I have I haven't. Yeah, although, Jill, we know you're a chatty passenger. You've told us that before. Um, that's one of those things that if uh, if you don't know who the unruly passenger is, it might be you. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't drink at all, so I'm good. <laughs> well, that's I good. bet you a lot of these incidents, not the entire plane is aware of them, but they seem to be escalating mm-hmm. a lot, getting more serious and, and maybe more dangerous even. They, they do. And I think, you know, people are just um, more poorly behaved than they used to be. They lack some of the filters and some of the discipline that I think um, you know, makes for an orderly society. Joyce, when you were um, working in the U.S. Attorney's Office, did you ever charge any of these midair flight cases like interfering with a flight crew or anything like that? You know, we didn't have these come up frequently, right? I mean, it wasn't something that we charged every month. Very rarely they would come up. Um, Early in my career, I actually charged this guy. He was a wannabe movie star who didn't think that the flight crew was treating him with sufficient deference. (laughs) So he decided that he wouldn't cooperate with their instructions as as they um, were preparing to land. And he actually really did endanger the flight crew. His, His conduct was dangerous. It was on a small plane. Um, And so he was charged and he ended up pleading guilty after insisting that he would not plead guilty. But but I think that those cases were pretty rare for us. Um, Something that we did see a lot of were people who brought their gun into the airport, which is, of course, uh, a crime and something that's treated much more seriously after 9-11. And DOJ's guidance on those cases, and, and we would see a lot of this, somebody who rushed into the airport for an early morning flight and forgot that their gun was in their briefcase, right? I mean, that's hard for me to believe because I could never do that, but we would <laughs> see that a lot. 
And you would give those people a stern warning and decline to prosecute them as long as they had no prior criminal history and it was very clear that there was no mischief afoot. Every once in a while, though, you would find a case that had to be prosecuted. We had a a gentleman who had this specially made cane and he had disassembled an automatic weapon and had stuffed some of the parts into the cane to get it on board the plane. He actually did get prosecuted. Yeah, we did some of them too. You know, we're um, Detroit is a Delta hub, so I think we had a lot of flights coming and going and laying over here. So we had a, a fair number of them. Jill, um, sometimes there's a, a federal air marshal on board a flight. And if so, you know, obviously they would have the legal authority to arrest or handcuff somebody who uh, commits a crime in his presence by assaulting a member of the flight crew or something like that. But what about the crew or the passengers? Like like in this case, can they restrain an unruly passenger? So, well, let me start with the air marshal because, again, based on my inside information from uh, my cousin Jonathan <laughs> Hilkovich, the reporter, um, there are air marshals, but there are fewer and fewer They were quite prevalent right after 9-11, but are no longer on most flights. And the other thing is that they would be very unlikely, he said, to ever reveal themselves um, for an unruly passenger because, as he put it, you could have a terrorist on board being an unruly passenger Mm -hmm. in order to unmask who the person Mm -hmm, is and then be able to succeed in their plot to do something even worse Uh, based on knowing who the air marshal was or even disarming the air marshal. So that probably doesn't work. Um, I did some research on this, and the the law is quite interesting. Um, There is a new protocol, the Montreal Protocol, that would empower the arrest of unruly passengers or who disrupt a flight. I mean, it's not enough to just be drunk. You have to actually take action uh, assaulting A flight attendant would certainly do that. Trying to break into the crew, uh, into the uh, cockpit would certainly qualify, uh, as would many other things. Uh, I don't know if the disrobing that Mr. Barry did uh, would qualify as disrupting the, the flight. But if you are disrupting a flight, that is a federal crime. And the question is, who has jurisdiction? And it depends on where the flight took off from, where the plane is registered, and where its destination is. And if the plane diverts to a third airport, that may not have jurisdiction. Only the takeoff and landing sites may have jurisdiction. And what happens in about 60% of the cases, the person is released without being charged because of that. And that's why um, the International Association of Air Transport Um, has proposed new rules that would allow much more. Um, And in the meantime, the flight attendants do have the right to try to control people to avoid any endangerment of the flight. And so the the frontier one that I think we should post some of the um, viral videos that were of comedians doing commentary on, on the episode... Um, would show they did uh, tie up a passenger uh, with duct tape um, in order to protect the other members of the flight and the flight crew. Um, So, yes, the crew can take action, and passengers often assist them in restraining an unruly passenger. 
You know, one interesting sort of nerdy legal aspect of that is that the crime here is technically called interference with the flight crew or or, uh, interference with the cabin crew. And so there was a dispute, and I remember this from early on in my career, over what prosecutors had to prove. Did you have to prove that the defendant had the intent to interfere with the flight crew? And ultimately, that question was answered by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. That's actually the court that that Alabama is a part of, along with Georgia and Florida. And this is the case that DOJ in its guidance memo to prosecutors still cites to. And the answer is no, you don't have to prove a specific intent to interfere. You just have to prove general intent, that the defendant intended to do his actions. So in that case, it was shoving uh, one of the cabin crew. It, It might be, you know, standing up and running around. But in any event, that makes it a little bit easier for prosecutors. And I think we're going to see more of these prosecutions as these incidents escalate. Mm-hmm. And Joyce, you probably cover this in your criminal law class. I do about intoxication as a defense. So even if he is drunk, it is not enough to negate general intent. So if there is just a general intent for um, interference with the flight crew, then uh, drunkenness is not going to be a defense. It's it's enough if you were a jerk. Doesn't matter if you uh, intended to disrupt the flight. Yes, tip to any of Barb's and my students this fall who may be listening. That always ends up on my exam, that general intent intoxication question every year. I I just want to be even nerdier than Joyce, which is the definition of what interfering in a flight is. And it requires that the doors have been closed before takeoff and not opened until deplaning. So once the doors are closed, even though you may be on the ground, that's considered in flight. And um, it, it's both a civil and a criminal offense, by the way. It, it is a criminal offense under uh, the criminal code 18 U.S.C. 3571 that can result in 20-year sentence or even life if you use a weapon. So it's a serious offense to interfere with a flight. Um, it can also result in fi- fines up to $250,000, and the fines are getting um, increased dramatically because of the increase in, in this behavior. So be careful of those tiny bottles of alcohol when you're flying on a flight. I had two very interesting cases um, at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, when, when I was there. I mean, one was a case known as the Underwear Bomber, very, very serious crime. An al-Qaeda terrorist tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day in 2009 with a bomb concealed in his underwear. But even in that case, um, the flight crew... And passengers subdued him and used zip ties to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, constrain him. And they put him in a, in a seat in the front of the plane. He was badly burned. So at that point, I don't know how much of a threat he was. But, uh, you know, they the crew absolutely had the right to subdue him and detain him for the protection of the other passengers in the flight itself. And then I had another really hey, interesting Barb, case. can I interrupt, though, and ask, yeah. did you guys charge just the terrorism? I mean, not just, but did you charge the terrorism crime? Did you also charge interference with the flight crew, or no. did you decide that was too we, de minimis? Yeah, we did not. We had other charges that were very serious that were yeah. available up to life in prison for, including attempted murder in uh, the federal uh, airspace jurisdiction of the and United States. And I want to States. know who had So we did not need to rely on that one. Um, somewhere in the flight crew. I mean, I don't think, I don't know if it was for the purpose of restraining people or if it was for some other purpose, but they, they did subdue him with that. Um, the other interesting case I had involving, uh, air travel was a guy who was, uh, falsely pretending to be the bodyguard for a rap singer named Lil Kim. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Lil Kim was in Detroit and then she was traveling to Philadelphia. And so he brought this huge gun on the plane with him in a holster. And he told everybody that he was a deputy U.S. marshal with the witness protection <laughs> program and that she was a witness in the murder of some other rapper. And um, he really just talked his way uh, on. He was a very large guy. He had played football at the University of Georgia and he was her bodyguard, got on the plane with this gun. But he had the very bad luck of sitting next to something like nine Secret Service agents who were flying from Detroit to Philadelphia. Um, and they knew immediately, like, this is no law enforcement gun. Law enforcement does not show their gun in a crazy holster like this. So they just got, got him talking to find out, what, who are you? What are you doing? And he talked it up and he told this whole story about being um, a deputy U.S. marshal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they, they asked if they could uh, have pictures of Lil' Kim and him, and they posed so they could get pictures of him and the gun and the holster. So they preserved great evidence. Um, and uh, he was convicted for bringing a gun on an airplane, which is which is a crime if you're not a law enforcement agent. Um, but I learned a lot of things about air travel in that case, including the danger of a gun going off in flight, of you know piercing the body of the plane, that the fuel is stored in the wing and it can blow up if there's a problem with that, that there's no window to open if you need to. So uh, air travel is is no joke. And so um, when, next time you fly, bring your duct tape. Bring your zip ties and watch your alcohol. I want to talk to you guys about a great cosmetic. It's called Thrive Cosmetics. And they make the best mascara. And I have tried every brand of mascara. And this one absolutely does not smudge even when you take it off, you don't get that big black glob under your eyes. It stays on all day and lengthens your lashes for sure. Has anyone else tried it besides me? Yeah, I, I use the mascara gel. In fact, I'm wearing it right now. Um, but um, one of the things I like best about Thrive Cosmetics is that its mission is to support causes. Uh, it donates uh, to help women thrive by supporting nonprofit partners. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of great things about Thrive Cosmetics. It is a really great company. I, I feel really good about buying their products. And like both of y'all, I'm a huge fan of the mascara. You know, I'm in the South. It's humid. Mascara just runs down your face really easily at this time of the year. But I appreciate Thrive because it stays up put. And it doesn't look fake. I, I'm not a big makeup person off of TV. I've had to learn how to do my own makeup um, with all of us being at home doing TV. Thrive makes it really simple to look good without fussing too much. Thrive Cosmetics make high-performance, vegan, 100% cruelty-free products without the use of parabens or sulfates. Their clean beauty, clinically proven formulas highlight your best features, and they even improve your skin. Thrive Cosmetics never tests on animals and are Leaping Bunny and PETA certified as 100% vegan and cruelty-free. On top of that, Thrive Cosmetics has a bold mission that's truly bigger than beauty. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help women thrive by supporting nonprofit partners with a donation of funds or products. It's how Thrive makes sure that they're a beauty brand that goes beyond being skin deep. We love everything about Thrive Cosmetics. Their products enhance your natural beauty, and their bigger-than-beauty mission is inspiring. You'll love them as much as we do. 
Visit thrivecosmetics.com slash sisters for 15% off your first order. This is an exclusive offer you can get only here. That's thrivecosmetics.com slash sisters for 15% off your first order. thrivecosmetics.com slash sisters, or you can find the link in our show notes. As always, we've received some great listener questions this week. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet us using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes from Kathleen, who asks, what is a bill of particulars in criminal cases? Joyce, can you answer that one for us? This is such a great question. This is criminal procedure. Um, Barb and I teach this too. Uh, Bill of particulars is a way that a defendant in a criminal case where a bill of particulars is authorized by Rule 7F, the defendant can say, prosecution, your claims aren't specific enough. I need more clarity on a certain point. I need the particulars uh, that will permit me to defend myself. Typically, indictments don't have to be all that detailed, and these motions aren't all that successful, but on occasion, you'll find a judge that will grant one. There's a similar process in civil cases, but typically, it's no longer used. It's been supplanted by civil discovery, which is very robust, and defendants and plaintiffs can ask questions or ask for documents and get their questions answered that way. Probably the last thing I should say, Kathleen, is that in criminal cases, you know, it's very interesting. A defendant can ask for a bill of particulars, but there's no comparable method for the prosecution. If, for instance, a defendant asserts a defense, the prosecution doesn't have the right to ask for more detail. So it's very one-sided in the criminal context. Before I ask the next question, Mark from Jerusalem, he asks if they have the power to subpoena phone records of members of Congress. So think about in the criminal context, Joyce, if you wanted to get subscriber records, you could get that with a subpoena. But if you want like call log records, you have to get a 2703D order. So what does Congress do? Can Congress get that? Wasn't there just this whole fury, you know, about finding out that congressional leaders had been the subject of some investigation? Or was that members of the media? I might be conflating my horribles. But I think there was some allegation. I think there was allegation that it was members of Congress. Yeah. But this Um, is, can Congress get phone records from... The other uh, direction. So so they can get... um, I don't think their subpoena power is limited in any way. I mean, they can subpoena... um, Can they, though? Because to get... um, 2703D requires a court order where, they, where um, the government shows specific and articulable facts showing reasonable grounds to believe the contents are relevant and material to an ongoing investigation. I don't, so, I just don't know that. Does Congress have to do that? that. I'm, I'm looking at the statute right now. Well, you know, it, it says government entity. Way. It doesn't say prosecutor. It says government entity. It means department or agency of the United States or any state or political subdivision thereof. I don't a think that's Congress. Of, yeah, so I don't know about congressional subpoena. All right, you know what? I, I think... Let's punt on that one because I'm yeah. just not sure. Sorry about that. It's an interesting All right, question. So now we need another one. Uh, oh, what's the second part? Wasn't there something that had a second part? Uh, uh, can a pro se litigant represent themselves in federal court, appeals court, or Supreme Court? 
the answer is yes for federal court and appeals court. Can they before the Supreme Court? I bet not. Sorry, I missed the question. Say again. Can Sorry, this is the question, the second part of Kathleen's question that you just answered. Can you be pro se in federal court? Yes. Appeals court? Yes. Yes. Supreme Court? Don't Yes. I have actually had that case when I was a very young lawyer in private practice. I got um, the delightful joy of responding to a pro se cert petition. It was horrible. Oh, so you can. How about if you actually, if they actually accept cert? Would they be able to argue? I think that they would appoint. You have to be a member of the Supreme Court bar to argue, but you've always got a pro se right. I think the answer is that they would try to coerce the party into letting them appoint a lawyer for them. Uh, In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court adopted a rule that all persons arguing orally must be attorneys. I guess if you're an attorney, Actually, I'm wrong. You don't have the option. They would appoint somebody for you. But I think you can f- still file a pro se. It's just oral argument. You can definitely file pro se. And our last question comes from Emily in Tacoma, who asks, what advice would you give for someone who has been sexually harassed? Jill, what, do you, what would you say about that? I would say, Emily, that is a great question. And the first advice I would have is make sure that you consult with a lawyer because you really would need one. Um, I played the role on a television show of a lawyer representing victims of sexual harassment um, right after the uh, Equal Opportunity Act passed. Yeah, not Equal Opportunity. The EEOC laws became uh, came into effect. And I got a lot of calls from women, and I had to listen to their stories and evaluate whether they would succeed in bringing the charges and what would happen to their careers in the meantime. And as someone who also was uh, sexually actually assaulted, if you consider a hand on the knee in a public place where other people could see it, uh, sexual assault, um, I didn't bring charges because I loved my job. And I knew that even if I won, which I would because I had witnesses to it, it would not help my career and I love my job. So I would have to say that I would say you have to think about looking at how you will be attacked and all you have to do is look at Lindsay Boylan to see what happened to her when she reported a a sexual harassment and think about it. Um, So consult with a lawyer, get some advice, and hopefully nowadays, where women are coming forward, where you have the support of the Me Too movement. You can get that advice from organizations like Me Too, and you can get the support that you need to do it. If it is significant enough that it's interfering with doing your job, it is definitely worth doing and protecting yourself and others, because if it's you, there are others who are being attacked. I have a follow-up question for you, Jill. Or Go ahead, Joyce. Well, I would add to that it's really important to get evidence of what's going on. Even before you're sure that you might want to proceed against someone who's harassing you, the most important thing that you can do is compile documentation a lot easier these days with the cell phone. Um, If there are other people who've witnessed it, make sure that you know who they are. Write down dates and times and keep detailed notes in a diary, because as we noted in discussing the allegations against Governor Cuomo, 
having a pattern of pervasive conduct can be very important. But something that you have to keep in mind while you're sorting it out is that there are time limits on these actions. Um, it, it differs depending on what you're um, thinking about doing. But for instance, for certain kinds of claims, you have to go to the EEOC before you file a lawsuit, and there are some very strict time constraints there. I think you've got 300 days. I might, I might be wrong about that. That's my recollection. Um, so it is important that you not just let it linger to the point where you either A, can't prove it, or B, you're out of time. You should always find a lawyer or a group that can help you think it through and decide what's right for you. And I would just add, I, th I think Jill gives some good advice about thinking pragmatically about the consequences and other things that uh, it, it may result from your reporting it. But I also think that um, no one should have to put up with uh, a hostile work environment. The law forbids it. Sometimes there are workplace cultures that seem to uh, excuse that kind of behavior. It's illegal. Um, and if it, it, don't, don't worry if, if people say that you have a chip on your shoulder and it's you and this is how it is at the workplace. It's unacceptable and you shouldn't feel the need to accept it. So um, it takes a little bit of courage to go through it, um, but uh, it is worth it not only for yourself, but all of the other women uh, in your organization and all the others who will follow. So um, it's, uh, it's a big decision, but um, just think about all the good you can do by exposing someone who is a sexual predator in the workplace. I hope y'all can't hear my dog right now. <laughs> we did hear a little growl. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Kimberly Atkins Store will be back next week. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sisters in law. This week's sponsors are Zola, HelloFresh, and Thrive Cosmetics. You can find their links in the show notes and please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, Follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We'd love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. I don't know what's going on upstairs. My boxer came down for a while. She almost never comes here. And now my cat is about to invade me. Come on, Harry, you can come up. Have the chickens uh, flown the coop and hanging out in the kitchen? No, we just expanded the coop this week. I, I bought a whole nother section and we, it's like, you know, it's taking over the backyard, y'all. It's great. <laughs> Hot tub in the coop for the chickens? Oh, no, you have to make them a sand bath. You know, they dirt bathe. They don't like water. Ooh. So you dig out an area and pour sand and herbs and stuff in. And they're so happy. It just makes them incredibly happy.